Richard Wormbrand, he does get it, doesn't he? Joy in sacrifice. And he has uh, put together an amazing memoir called uh, Tortured for Christ. And it's published uh, by a Christian ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. And you can pick that up for free um, just by contacting that ministry and they'll send you a copy of this amazing book, um, Tortured for Christ um, by Richard Wormbrand. And um, his life certainly does reflect joy in sacrifice. In our series over Paul's um, letter to the Philippians, and that's where we are this morning. Uh, if this is your first time to here at Windsor, my name is Randy, and I'm uh, just privileged to be the lead minister here at the church. And uh, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. You'll find Philippians 2, 12 through 30 on page 981 of your church Bibles, the black Bibles that are in the pouch in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, Please feel free to take that, put your name in it, take it home as a gift from uh, this church family. I'm going to be reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow soldier and fellow worker and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, 
risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. Well, every year at Windsor Road, we send out short-term missions teams to other countries in order to serve, to do construction, to teach. Uh, uh, Sometimes it's street evangelism or village evangelism, door-to-door. And to just encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ abroad. And these trips are very organized, and some of them have been done so frequently, there's just a predictable schedule. Uh, So, for instance, on one of our trips, you know, we would leave on a Tuesday, and uh, that's a travel day. And then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday would be work days or construction days. And then um, Saturday would be ministry day. Uh, where we would uh, uh, spend some time uh, either uh, doing children's ministry or maybe village evangelism or street preaching. Um, And then Sunday is a worship day where we gather with uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, where we are. And then, yes, there's a play day. We get to relax a little bit on one of those days. And then Tuesday comes, and then we're back on the plane headed home. So it's a fairly um, uh, um, organized, it's very organized, rather, and predictable, fairly predictable schedule for the day. And there's checklists, and there's procedures, and it takes a lot of organization on the front end to make that happen. And barring illnesses or unfortunate situations... Uh, These trips go very well. That said, sometimes things happen. (laughs) Sometimes people get sick. Sometimes the senior minister gets sick. The day he's supposed to preach. (laughs) Sometimes vehicles break down. Flights get delayed. Flights get canceled. Luggage or possessions get lost. And yes, sometimes there's even a robbery. And that feeling of being invaded and money is stolen. And when that happens, at that very moment, what we're learning is that God is calling us to a deeper sacrifice than we originally thought we were going to make. And there's a temptation in that very moment. The temptation is this. The temptation is to think, well, I didn't sign up for that. That's not what I signed up for. And we've got a choice. We've got a choice to find joy in sacrifice or to murmur and grumble and complain. Our scripture this morning is about a missions trip that went bad. You probably sensed that as we were reading Philippians 2, 12 to 30. We learn of this leader named Epaphroditus. Let's make sure we get his name correct. Epaphroditus on on three. I want you to say that with me. One, two, three. Epaphroditus. One more time. One, two, three. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is this leader. And he was on this mission trip that went south. Went bad. And through that, I want you to see... Joy and sacrifice. What I want to do this morning is I just I want to get the story. What's the story? What's going on here in these verses? This letter is in a context sent to a congregation, and this person who appears, you know, in verse 25 and then leaves us after verse 30, 
What's the story of Epaphroditus? And I want to talk about that first. And then, and then I want to talk about what's Paul's point. What does Paul want to communicate about Epaphroditus' story to the Philippians? What's the point of that? And then the third question I want to answer is, what's the take-home for us? That's where we're going this morning. What, so what, now what? First the what, the story. Well, Epaphroditus, it's a story about joy in sacrifice. Look at verse 25. Paul says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. So Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. Back to the Philippians. When the Philippians heard that their beloved apostle Paul was in prison, uh, under house arrest, in Rome, on trial, the Philippian church sent their own Epaphroditus. And they sent him with a large gift, a large sum of money to help pay for Paul's expenses because back then the government did not pay for the expenses of prisoners. Why would the state pay food for prisoners? Prisoners had to depend upon a support group for food. And so Paul was dependent on a support team. A support team that would supply money to pay for his living expenses and for this rented house that you can read about in Acts chapter 28. And so they sent Epaphroditus along with this large gift to help Paul. But the, the mission was not merely just to give money. The mission was about helping to take care of Paul's needs. That's what's behind verse 25 where Paul calls Epaphroditus your messenger and your minister to my need. To my need. There it is. Epaphroditus' purpose was to be Paul's attendant, to be his assistant, to be his concierge. That's what it was. How long? For as long as it takes. For as long as it takes. Now think about that for a minute. Because, you know, if you look at our church bulletin on the back, you'll see a list of our ministerial staff. And uh, we have part-time and full-time employees here at the church. I don't think that's what we're looking at here in the church in Philippi. So that must mean one of two things. Either Epaphroditus was wealthy enough to provide out of his own means this trip, or the Philippian church said, listen, we need, you to, we need you to go and we'll help pay for that too, you know. Um, probably the former. Either way, Epaphroditus is going to be gone from his home. And it's not going to be a weekend trip. 800 miles from Philippi to Rome. There's no flight. He's got to walk. <laughs> Maybe horseback. It's a trip. It's not one week to the Dominican and back. It's a fairly substantial commitment. To be Paul's assistant. You need water? I'll go get it. Uh, you, You need food? Got it covered. Paul is chained to a Roman guard. Paul's not going anywhere. Oh, you'd like to write to the church at Ephesus? I'll make sure that you get the parchment and the pen and the ink and the, uh, the, the scribe to do the right. Whatever you need, Paul, I've got your back. That's Epaphroditus. That's his mission, 
to be Paul's assistant, his attendant, his concierge. That was the plan. That was the plan until the plan went bad. Epaphroditus became ill. You see that there in verse 26. Very ill. We don't know if it was malaria. We don't know if it was uh, bubonic plague. Either of those would have been untreatable in first century Rome, which means you just had to wait it out. Either you lived or you died, and Epaphroditus grew worse. Three times Paul speaks of his near-fatal condition. Verse 27 says he was near to death. Literally, uh, Epaphroditus was death's next-door neighbor. That doesn't sound good. Verse 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ. And then yet again, a third time Paul speaks of his near-fatal condition when saying he risked his life. He risked his life. And the only thing that saved Epaphroditus was the mercy of God. Verse 27, God had mercy on him. Hmm. The mercy of God saved his life. Now, so so how, how did that play out? What does that mean? Does that mean Paul laid his hands on him and healed him? Well, possibly, but we don't know. We don't know. I mean, Paul had the gift of supernatural healing, and Paul wasn't a wizard. You know, I don't know that Paul could just heal on demand, you know. Here Paul is totally dependent on God's mercy to bring his brother in Christ from a near-fatal disease. Isn't it ironic? The one who was sent to minister to Paul's needs was on a deathbed while Paul, the prisoner and the one who had need, he tended to his health. And all of this in full view of a Roman guard. I wonder what the talk was back in the Praetorian after that guard got back, you know? My, how these people care for one another. My goodness. Well, God came through. God showed Epaphroditus mercy and showed Paul mercy as well. Verse 27, God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Well, somehow the Philippians found out about Epaphroditus' condition and they grew concerned. And then, and then Epaphroditus found out that they were concerned and so he became concerned about their concern and, and now Paul's concerned. <laughs> you know, how's he going to be treated when he gets back? Are they going to give him a hard time? Are they going to second guess the decision to send him in the first place? Will some of them start to grumble and complain and dispute and say, well, I knew we shouldn't have sent him in the first place because he was looking kind of pasty, but I didn't want to say anything. And then add to this an an, an honor-shame culture in which the Philippians were immersed. This honor-shame culture, which meant that it was really important to save face out in public. Not be embarrassed or not embarrass your family or church family. That was very important then. And then add to this the disunity that was lurking about the Philippian church family. And we learn a little bit more about that in Philippians 4, where two leaders are just not getting along, Euodia and Syntyche, and Paul has to call them out on him, you know? 
Paul surveys the landscape and he thinks it wise. Epaphroditus, let's get you home. Let's get you home. You have served Christ remarkably here and you will serve better there. Let's get you there, okay? And, uh, oh, take this letter with you and read it to the church once you get there. And the letter is the letter to the Philippians, okay? So Epaphroditus is the courier of this letter to the Philippians. And, and to head off any grumbling or complaining or disputing within the church, I think that's why the Apostle Paul introduces Epaphroditus with five VIP titles. Did you catch that there? You got it there in verse 25. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger, and your minister. Uh, I think that's why Paul likens Epaphroditus with Jesus. In verse 27, Paul says that Epaphroditus was near to death. And that is a phrase which echoes what Paul says about Christ in verse 8. Jesus was obedient to death. You see how he likens them? Paul wants to make sure the Philippians know what an important role Epaphroditus played and how costly his sacrifice was. He almost died. He almost died. Listen, I know you know this. Let me remind us. Just because you serve God doesn't give you a free pass from difficult and stressful situations. Really. I mean, we say, well, God, I'm serving you. I'm going on this trip. I'm giving. I'm spending myself. And then, you know, why is all of this happening? Why? Why? You know why? Because we live in a broken, fallen, crooked, dark, twisted world. And, and that means we sometimes receive the fallout from that. Paul is in chains while he dictated these words. He knows that. And the point is that such hardships are opportunities for us to display joy in sacrifice. The question is, will we? Will we? Back to Richard Wormbrand, this video that you saw. There's a quote. I've got it on your outline. Uh, It really stirred my soul. He said it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. They were ha- we were happy preaching and they were happy pr- beating us. And so everybody was happy. <laughs> he gets it. Joy and sacrifice. We need to get it. And this kind of leads us to Paul's point. That's question number two. Paul's point behind the story. Paul's point behind the story is in verse 29. Honor such men. Honor such men. And, and, and by honor, he doesn't mean, you know, uh, have a cookies and punch reception. He means you. these are heroes among you. These are living replicas of Christ among you. Paul wants the Philippians to honor Epaphroditus for nearly dying for the work of Christ. Now, what work was that? Nearly died for the work of Christ, okay? Well, what work was that? What was this work of Christ? 
Was it evangelism? Was it planting churches? Was it standing in the hall of Tyrannus at the first century city of Ephesus and arguing about Jesus Christ being the long-awaited Messiah? Was that this work of Christ Paul's talking about? No. No. It was being Paul's attendant. It was being his concierge. It was verse 25, being your messenger and minister to my need. Do you see what's going on here? Paul identifies ordinary service as the work of Christ. In Jesus' eyes, Epaphroditus, had he died, his death would have been as weighty as Paul's himself. Sometimes the smallest act of service teaches us about the greatest act of sacrifice. So when you think about the word ministry, what do you think about? What's your view of ministry? When when you think about doing ministry, you know, is ministry to you like a big spotlight? You know, you step out of your life and on the stage, underneath the light, and that's ministry. And you do that for a moment, and then you step, you know, out of the light and back into your life. Is that how you view ministry? Is that? Well, that's not where Paul's going. Where Paul's going is that the work of Christ is life in the ordinary. That's where Paul's going. It's doing the everyday, mundane, moment-by-moment, often unseen acts of sacrifice for God's glory and the good of others. And not just Epaphroditus. Paul mentions Timothy as well. He alludes to Timothy's day-by-day, moment-by-moment consistency. That's what's behind verse 22 when he says, But you know Timothy's proven worth. His proven worth. That is to say, Timothy has been tested over and over, day-by-day, And in the moment-by-moment, mundane, routine, often unseen, ordinary acts of service, he has showed himself faithful, and he has been building this portfolio of faithfulness day by day by day. And that's why Paul says, I want to send Timothy to you. I've got no one like him. He's genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy is like Christ in that he has the mind of Christ. He counts others more significant than himself. Echoing back to verse 4. We are of equal souls, Paul says, of Timothy. He's like my own son. And Paul celebrates that. Part of what made Paul such a great leader is how he recognized and saw ministry as the Monday moment-by-moment faithfulness. He saw that for what it really was. And we are good leaders when we see that in the lives of others and when we recognize that in the lives of others, the moment-by-moment faithfulness. And so just as Epaphroditus was the bridge from the Philippians to Paul, that's what's behind verse 30, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me, that's not a critique. It's actually a compliment whereby Paul is saying, because Epaphroditus was with me, it's as if the entire church was with me. 
Epaphroditus was the bridge from the Philippians to Paul. Now Timothy serves as the bridge from Paul to the Philippians. And Paul's going to send Epaphroditus now. And he's going to wait to send Timothy later, pending the outcome of his trial, you see. And Paul's confident that he'll be released so that he too can come, as verse 24 tells us. But Paul's point in highlighting these two servants of God is this. When you see their lives, when you see the lives of of such leaders, servant leaders such as Epaphroditus and Timothy, you are seeing no less than the life of Christ. You're seeing two brothers who live as citizens worthy of the gospel. You're seeing two ministers who selflessly serve even in the face of opposition. You're seeing two fellow soldiers who are striving side by side with one mind, one soul for the sake of the gospel. You're seeing two co-workers who refuse to blink under the threat of opposition or persecution. Their minds are like that of Christ Jesus. So honor them and imitate them. Paul says, receive them with such joy and honor men like them. They are living replicas of Jesus. And we need that, don't we? Don't we need living replicas of Christ? You come to church and pastor gets up and says, be like Jesus. And we go, okay. Can you help me? What's that look like? And Paul says, well, it looks like Timothy. It looks like Epaphroditus. Okay. Um, looks like Jim Jackson. Colonel Jim Jackson. He was here the very first year that I was here at Windsor Road. He was the Marine officer instructor. He was a major back then. He was only here one year. Man, this guy, he loved Jesus. And he was a fantastic leader. His wife, Teresa, led him to Christ. And to see him, to see his countenance, to see his demeanor, to see his persona, to see how he spoke, to see his discipline, to see his gentleness, it's like, Okay. Okay, I, I get that. And then I think of, you know, I think of Lou Best, you know, who he and Shirley were here at our church. And he was a colonel in the Army and was the ROTC commander here at the university. And, and to see his, his intellect and to see his physical stamina and to see his spiritual life. And just when I saw that, that hell, okay. This is what it means to look like Jesus. See, we need flesh and blood examples of the life of Christ. We do. Who is that for you? See, you have that in your picture? Have that in your mind? Who are you looking to? Uh, for, for these folks, it was Epaphroditus. It was Timothy. It was Lydia, one of the charter members of the church. Godly woman. I mean, she was a... a uh, excellent businesswoman, dealer of purple cloth. Wow. This is what it looks like to be like Jesus. 
Who is that in your mind? Who are you thinking about? And, and are you that person for someone else? Because that's really where we need to get to. We need to get to where others can say, okay, I'm looking at your life and I'm seeing the life of Christ. I'm seeing the words of Christ. I'm seeing the person of Christ. I'm seeing the gentleness of Christ. I'm seeing the harshness of Christ. I'm seeing the grace and the truth of Christ. See? Well, what would your life look like if that were the case? What do you think? What would it look like? What would be the very first indicator in your life that you were a replica of Christ? What might that be? What does Paul say? This is where we get to the the challenge, the the now what, the take-home. Because we learned here in these verses, we learned. You know what Paul says is the very first indicator that you are a replica of Jesus? Verse 14, no grumbling. No dispute. I didn't write this. No murmuring, no disputing, no whining. Now that's the clearest indication that God is working in you and through you. Listen, you are someone else's church. They may not be ready to come in this room. What's going to go on in this room? Well, they're not ready to experience that. But they experience you. Now what are they experiencing? The clearest indicator that you have star power in a darkened and crooked and depraved world is what comes out of your mouth. Because what comes out of your mouth first came in your heart. Verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul likes really long sentences, doesn't he? Wherever you are, Whomever you're with, no matter what time of day it is, no matter what circumstances are going on outside of you, no matter what rumbling is happening inside of you, do everything that you do without one grumble, one dispute, or one word of complaint. Oh my. Can you imagine a day like that? Can you imagine just one day that isn't marked and marred in some way by complaint? Can you imagine waking up in the morning and not being filled with the pressure of all the things that you really don't want to do and a bit of grumbling inside says you don't want to do them? Can you imagine lying down at night and your heart's not filled with gratitude but complaint about what your day's been like? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in the marketplace of life around other people and not complaining because people are somehow in your way? Can you imagine being a parent and not complaining about your children? Can you imagine being a child and not complaining about your parent? Can you imagine being a worker and not complaining about your boss? Can you imagine being a boss and not complaining about your workers? Can you imagine life absolutely absent of complaint? And you, could it be that there are few things that 
more clearly set us apart as children of God and citizens of heaven as a life without complaint? And could it be, brothers and sisters, that this thing that we often think of as a little sin is not a little sin at all? God, in his grace and in his sovereign, redemptive plan, he scatters his people so that everywhere his light shines. Everywhere in the halls of a hospital, the light shines. In the lawyer's office, the light shines. In a university library, the light shines. In a grocery store, the light shines. On the streets of a city, light shines. At the mall, in the coffee shop, at the stadium, in the morning and afternoon and evening, in the classroom, the light shines. The stars are out with such vivid clarity that you could not be in the wider community without being exposed to the light of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's ministry. That's min- ministry is not stepping out of your life into some spotlight. Rather, it is our amazing God's irrational love for this dark, twisted, corrupted world. And he loves this light-deprived place so much that he has left us to braze brightly his redemptive light. Church family, we are his light. We are his light. Your life is ministry, and ministry is your life. And there's no separation. There's not. And you are to be one of those lights wherever you are. And why? Paul tells us because you are children of God. Verse 15 Children of God. You're in the family, you bear the name. You represent the king. And you are to speak the language of the king. And the whining, complaining, murmuring, like Israel in the wilderness, that's not the king's language. It's not. Whining, whining is the primary language of a shrink-wrapped kingdom. No whining. No whining. So where does this passage leave? Well, uh, it leads me, first of all, to have to confess to you that sometimes I do slip in from, a, from gratitude into an attitude of entitlement and complaint. You know? You know? I've been here 24 years. I shouldn't have to put up with that. Don't they know who I am? Don't they know who I am? And when I do that, the moment I do that, I become part of the background droning, murmuring, griping, grumbling, complaining noise of a dark and crooked world. Children of God must shine, not whine. There it is. That's the big idea. Children of God must shine, not whine. Richard Wormbrand didn't whine. Epaphroditus didn't whine. Timothy didn't whine. Paul didn't whine. Jesus didn't whine. You're in the same family. We're in the same family. We 
don't whine. We shine. Children of God must shine, not whine. That's the word. And I'm also led to another place here. I'm not only led to just, you know, repentance for the times that I do, but I'm led to another place. This passage drives me to Jesus himself. Because maybe you're listening here this morning, you're thinking, how, you know, how can I ever, ever live a complaint-free life? Listen, Jesus lived that life on your behalf. He did. He, he lived a life of righteousness that you and I could never accomplish so that we could stand in our brokenness and in our self-focus and in our self-centeredness. And, and if anyone deserved to complain, he, you know, there's only one person who deserved to say, I deserve better than this. But he never did. Because his joy was to do his Father's will. And so he accomplished righteousness on your behalf. Righteousness that you could never accomplish. So that when we say, Lord, please help me. Help, help me be fearless and unafraid and filled with hope because of your life, death, and resurrection. And the good news is that he will never turn his back on you. He won't quit. He will not relent until one day your mouth is filled with praise because your heart is filled with nothing but worship. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is not giving up on you and me. We're family. He is working his will. He's working us to act to his good pleasure. So then by faith, you work out in your life what God is working in to your life. And you shine God's thrown you out. You've been picked up and thrown. It's not one big spotlight. It's a thousand lights. Spraying out throughout this world, throughout this community, the grace and glory of God. You were meant to shine like a star for the sake of this broken world and for the glory of the one who himself is light, the Lord Jesus Christ. Church family, shine, don't whine. Amen.